Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Common Sense Finance Podcast. Anthony here, and on this episode, Nick and I had the pleasure of interviewing Kiernan Ensor, who is currently the president of Conference One, a collegiate esports league. Nick and I have been very interested in speaking about the topic of esports because we don't really have much knowledge or background information on the industry, especially prior to recording this episode. Well, after this conversation, Nick and I feel like we're ex- experts in the field because Kiernan really just gave us tremendous insight into the industry. He was really able to break down the economics and business aspects of the esports industry, where he personally sees the industry in a five to 10 year window and a bunch of other information about esports. He was also able to touch on NFTs just a little bit, which really made Nick and I very excited because we've been trying to talk about the topic for a number of episodes now. And overall, it was a fantastic conversation. We enjoyed it. We learned a lot. And we hope you out there also have the same takeaways we did. So we hope you listen and we hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Common Sense Finance Podcast. Anthony here. And today we have the, uh, the pleasure of speaking with Professor Ensor. Thank you for coming on to the podcast today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you today because this is a completely different field. We're not really familiar with it whatsoever. And Nick and I have a lot of interest in it. So I think before we get into today's topic, would you be able to provide some insight into your background so the listeners get a better idea of who you are? Sure. Uh, I come from a traditional sports background. Uh, Most of my actual professional experience comes from working in college athletics. Uh, So that's basic. uh, That's most of my background. I spent any number of years working jobs, uh, you know, starting from when I was a teenager, just working uh, basketball camps, doing different things on college campuses. So by the time that I was an undergrad student, I was working in the athletic office, uh, doing developmental work, you know, donor databasing, things of that nature. Uh, By the time I was getting older, I was starting to do, um, you know, championship work, uh, you know, organizational, operational work, marketing, uh, getting my feet wet with compliance. Uh, by the time I got my first job at the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference, uh, after, you know, outside of school, I was director of championships and special events there. Uh, I proceeded to go on uh, and recognize that sports wasn't my thing. Um, I always say to people, it's best you recognize early on in your career when you need to make a pivot. Don't just like, you know, lay, you know, you know, lay there and figure it out, you know, five, 10 years down the line. It's much easier to say, hey, listen, I learned a couple great things from this first job, but at the end of the day, I can take that core skill set and transfer it over. Uh, for me, it was esports. That's where I found the real crossover appeal. Uh, because while I didn't like watching, you know, sports on a day-to-day basis, you know, I enjoyed the championships. I enjoyed working with the student athletes, the coaches, the administrators, all the real key aspects of it. But the last thing I wanted to do after coming back from a six-day championship was turn on like the baseball game or watch the NBA. It just it had no, I had no desire in it. Um, but conversely, I was really into esports. That's what I did for relaxation. That's what I was doing. So right around 2015, 2016, when I was really starting to, uh, you know, explore my transition, you know, I recognized there's a lot of similarities here, you know, in the organizational structure and the competition structure and how it needs to be fundamentally organized and how we're going to progress into the future. There's a lot, a lot of similarities. And what I recognized even further was there was a niche market for me to interject my skills because while the pro scene was developing heavily out in the West, what we saw was that there was a college market that was burgeoning. It was right on the edge of just like teetering to coming over to the you know, to blossoming into a full-blown marketplace, but there was no one really solving the need that colleges needed. And that was for consulting, expertise, guidance in those sort of areas. So I spent about six to eight months just learning everything I could, talking to people in the industry, talking to friends that I had, you know, doing my data, doing my research. And then I just started deciding, all right, I'm going to work, I'm going to build my consultancy. I'm going to reach out to people that I know in the athletic world and see if if they're in interest of my skills. And sure enough, there were a lot of people looking for the exact services that I was providing. So I started running my own consultancy. Eventually, I went up to Canisius College and I ran their esports program for the last two years. And then most recently, I became uh, president of Conference One, which is a collegiate uh, Valorant league uh, that just started this past May. Uh, We're we're coming up on a year now, uh, anniversary. Um, And we have over 50 schools competing in a competition. We look to double that this upcoming fall. So... That's a little bit about my background. I think it's very interesting. And I, I have a question that was kind of lingering when it comes to esports, especially in a college, uh, on a college level. I think, like you said, esports is very similar to other sports, but I think a way that it's distinct is that 
you can market yourself differently, like as an individual, while you really can't do that, like let's say in basketball or football. So uh, if I'm like a really good gamer or someone looking to get into esports, what would the benefit be of going to a college rather than just trying to do something myself? Sure. Um, I would say it's not a either or situation, right? You know, I think that's, you know, there's a dichotomy that you're like suggesting in that it says either I become a full-time streamer or I become a full-time college student. And the real benefit to the college and the esports marketplace is you probably know by the time you're 17, 18, if you're actually going to be recruited to be a pro player, right? If, you know, that's sort of the day age where you're getting scouted, people see your skill. This isn't to say that people don't get scouted later on. There's been 20, plenty of 21, 22, 23-year-olds that have made a later stage transition, but you kind of know by 18 whether or not you're going to be a pro esports player. And the other avenue is, you know, your influencer, right? Your Nick Merckx, your Tim the Tatmans, your Dr. Lupos, your Valkyries, your all these like high-level influencers. And they take time to grow, right? It's inherently a grind to get there. So what you need to look at is, all right, so I want to spend four years and see if this works and have nothing to fall back on, right? I'm going to become a full-time streamer. I have a couple hundred followers on my social media. You know, am I going to do that for four years, grind it out, have no assistance, no team, no, you know, tier two thing. It's a really, it's, it's a crapshoot. And you probably have legitimately less odds of making it in that sort of environment than you would have becoming pro, right? It's, it's very exclusive. Only the top you know, maybe 2,000, 5,000 streamers on Twitch actually turn a profitable model where they're making a good income on a day-to-day basis. You know, same thing for YouTube. Um, So it's very hard to break into that sort of model. Whereas if you go to college, you can play on a team. That team regularly gets streamed. You get exposed to a marketplace. You know, even though college marketplace is much smaller than the pro marketplace, you'll see that if you market yourself well in college, You'll get a lot more opportunities. You can get interviewed. You get support from your school. And in that way, you can really grow your own brand and own following while on the college campus with the benefit of if it doesn't work out, you have a college degree and you can also get it paid for with scholarships uh, to a certain extent as well. So there's a lot of financial models that are in place in college that make it a much better, I wouldn't say much better, but a much safer bet um, for you to you know, pursue your uh, esports streams. And I guess a follow up to that, you said that, you know, you can get scouted while in high school prior to college. What exactly would you look for if you were a scout for someone, if, you, if you're trying to recruit someone for an esports program, like would these students or these individuals be at like independent tournaments outside of their school? Are there high school esports teams that you are aware of? Sure. Um, so that's a two-part question there. So first off, let's take the easy one. There's a lot of high school uh, esports growing right now. You know, there, there's estimated that somewhere between 10 and 15% of high schools now have a, a, the esports team, uh, which we're going to see continue to grow and grow and grow. And we can get into the economics of why esports as a sport makes sense to schools and institutions. But um, so, yeah, you can definitely get scouted in, in high school. But mostly what you're going to get scouted is when you're playing the game on your own or solo, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, game recognizes game if we're using the traditional sports model, right? Skill recognizes skill. Ball don't lie. If you're grinding it out uh, day in and day out in a game and you're playing against a very high level of competition, eventually teams are going to know, especially in the team-based competition, people are going to be like, this guy keeps on beating me. I don't understand. Like, you know, like, and that's how coaches and analysts and things get their first look. This kid, you know, in League of Legends, it's really easy wow, this kid is, you know, challenger, this kid is grand champ, this kid is, you know, uh, you know, depending on what game title is the highest rank radiant, um, you know, he's top 500, he's top 100. What do we know about this person? Let's have him on a discord, let's DM him a little bit, see what age he is, see where he's located. And once you get those informations, most of the time coaches and teams will scout you by just inviting you to a scrim and things of that nature. It's not an easy process to get scouted. Uh, by no means, you know, a lot of people are you don't usually want to support an up-and-comer or a gamer necessarily if you have a pro position because you could be, you know, in essence, ushering in your own replacement. Um, but it definitely happens. Um, and if you do have a good social media and you just even make montages of you beating these high-level players and it gets some traction, you know, 
you need to know whether you have the skill or not. But, you know, for a lot of the games where there's a ranked-based system, you have a much easier time at least getting scouted. And then, yes, there are independent tournaments. They're usually scouting grounds, paths to the pro events that are out there right now that can help those avenues even more so. And, and a question I guess I have would be, you know, could you elaborate further on the economics of why it makes sense to have esports in high school? Sure. Um, you know, let's talk about why sports is expensive, right? What are the fundamental costs in traditional sports? Um, it comes down to a couple of things. Facilities are very expensive. You know, even at the very base level, if you're just playing on a soccer field or a football field or something like that, reseeding your grass every year, you know, you probably do it either two or three times, the chalk, the referees you have to pay for, your head coach, all those sort of factors that grow in there, very expensive. But the biggest one that most everyone forgets time and time and time again is travel. You know, even at the high school level, you're traveling to 50% of your matches. That's getting a bus that is providing, you know, uh, you know, paying the bus driver, all those sort of things. When you do that time and time again, it, is, it adds up to being a very substantial cost. You know, think about having a bus driver sit around at a track meet for five, six hours, right? You're paying that person an hourly. You're renting that bus from the bus company. You know, you do that 20 times in just one sport, you know, add that up and aggregate that over 10, 15, 20 different sports that you're running as a high school or college it becomes a much, much, it's, it becomes a very, very large expense. And when you throw into the college market that you're actually probably taking long trips overnight, hotel stays, food, and all those sorts of things, you know, an average trip for a basketball team can cost somewhere between, you know, 25 and $50,000 when you're really going on a, you know, taking airfare and different things of that nature. Esports has one substantial benefit. Your facility can take on almost every single game that you do and you don't have to travel. You may travel for maybe one LAN event, maybe one other sort of like championship style event in a given year, but compare that to traveling 15, 20, 30, 40 times, you know, the, the economics are just substantially different. It makes it a lot cheaper. Um, you know, right now, most esports programs are using assistant coaches or head coaches that are on, our pot, on a part-time salary basis, or they're tapping in from someone that's already getting paid, and they're just getting a stipend to do this extra work. You know, it's actually fairly cheap to start an esports program. Now, I use my program up at Canisius, for example. I, when I went up there, uh, it cost us about $50,000 to renovate an already existing es um, computer lab and turn it into an esports suite, right? Compare that, you probably spend that per quarter in reseeding your fields or fixing your AstroTurf or doing any of the other things that we, you know, you think about that. Filling a pool will cost you that much, you know, doing that three or four times a year. Um, and then they had my salary and I was the only person that was, you know, running that department. And I was a GA, I was a graduate assistant at the time. So, you know, we're talking for a net sum of about fifty, fifty-five thousand $55,000, you know, depending on what my GA salary actually was, which still confuses me sometimes these days, um, you know, you get to have a program that can recruit kids into your school. And realistically, I only need to get one student to cover that entire cost, right? If I get one person to come to my school that otherwise wouldn't have at the college market, what I would have made in from their acceptance rate and everything of that nature would have covered the cost of my uh, building out the facility and my salary. Now, eventually, as things get more and more, you know, uh, higher level and more and more established, the costs are going to go up and up, but it's, uh, you're also getting more and more students. So the economics make it really simple on the, on the college level, and that's why we've seen such wide adaptation, right? They're in the market to get students. Esports attracts students, and right now, the average salary, I mean, the average um, scholarship is about 3500 so, and that gets tacked on to other academic aid and financial aid, but, you know, if you can attract that student and you keep your costs low and it's not escalating out of control with travel and things, you have a really solid economic model and reasoning to build out your esports program. I, I think Anthony and I might change our majors after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to persuade, I guess. <laughs> but going back uh, to the beginning, when you said, you know, you had career changes, you knew what, you know, you didn't, you didn't want to pursue what you were pursuing and you changed that, that kind of, you know, backtracks to the question where what career opportunities will arise as a result of esports, And, you know, what are some ways that, you know, students can realize 
you know, they can, you know, bounce around and see what, what they find is interesting for them. Sure. So let's do a couple quick hits here. So first off, please, any student that listens to this, do not become an esports major. All right. This is nothing against the programs that are doing esports. Um, it's just that you have to understand that there is no skill set inherent in an esports major. What you're looking at is to find a specific niche or title or job track that you would see in pretty much any other different discipline, right? So in sports, you have communications, you have athletic training, you have uh, marketing, you have you know uh, management operations, all those sort of fields. In esports, you're seeing them develop already and a similar track. So being an esports major is sort of like being a business major, right? Like what particular area of business did you do? Did you do accounting? Did you do finance? Did you do you know management? Like tell me what you actually learned and what skill set you were able to apply from there. You know, I would say esports degrees have a sort of inherent ring to them as general studies. All right, you earned 120 credits, but what did you actually learn? Tell me the skill set that you applied here. So I say, you know, from a academic standpoint, those uh, tracks that we see that are just esports majors are not inherently, uh, you know, applicable uh, when post graduation. I'd rather you be an esports business major, an esports journalism major, an esports broadcasting major. You know, some of those skill sets that have you know tangible benefits and that also don't pigeonhole you into a you know set career, right? Because right now, what I will say in the esports marketplace is we have a lot of passion but not necessarily skill sets that back up that passion, right? So if you told me you wanted to get into esports, I assume both of you are finance majors based off of the podcast, right? I would say maybe what you want to do is look at, okay, what are the major funds that are investing in esports? Because they are, right? We have a lot of venture capital money in the esports space. Okay, what major funds are doing there? How can I become an intern there? How can I become an eventual asset manager, a portfolio manager, something in those sort of neighborhoods that focuses in on esports so that I can, you know, apply my finance background and understanding the mechanics of how this, you know, venture capital should work. What is a good buy? How is this working in the marketplace? And you can apply those skills to esports quite easily and quite readily. And you could take almost any career path and do the same. There are a lot of esports law firms now popping up to deal with, you know, contracts and agents and all those sorts of things. You know, they also have to do these deals, uh, sponsorship deals. They have to do the venture capital deals. They have to do the seeding deals. So there's a lot of need for the legal profession. Accounting, if you're looking at the, you know, influencer market, you know, influencers have a very unique set of incomes that can, you know, depending on how you're doing with the IRS, can be quite difficult, Right. You have a lot of different income streams, different benefits, different companies, you know, an average influencer who has a couple sponsorship deals and a couple of, you know, ad deals over the course of the year, would probably have someone in the neighborhood of like 10 to 15 W2s. You know, that's probably a little bit outside the realm of like, oh, I'll do it on my own. Sure. All right. TurboTax, let's do this bad boy. Crack the knuckles and go down, right? You want someone that understands why, you know, you're getting paid from Amazon, why you're an independent contractor here, why you're an employee there, and actually match and match those to a point where they have, you know, some coherency. Um, broadcasting, video engineers, broadcasting engineers, social media managers, huge in esports. Um, you're seeing more, uh, you know, sports psychologists uh, get into the realm of esports since it's so mental focused and things of that nature. So if you have a career in mind and you, or a major in mind or a skill set in mind, you can obviously find a way um, to mix and match that with esports. It's just understanding what your skill set is. For me, it's understanding league operations, uh, fundamental business practices, um, understanding where the marketplace is going to be in 10 years. You know, I have a lot of the ideation phase done and I do really well in the event ex execution, league execution, right? I know how to make money off of an event. I know how money, how to make money off of a league. I know how to work a sponsorship deal and things of that nature. So that's why I found myself more suited for a league operational role as opposed to being um, on a pro team side of things, working you know back a house and back a scene of that nature. That didn't really attract me. Uh, I was okay on campus. I'll admit that you know now that I've, I have a few more years underneath me and you know I have 2020 vision. You know hindsight 2020. I know what I would have done differently if I was on campus again. But, you know, it wasn't a great fit for me from the get-go. I had never really worked with student-athletes one-on-one or things of that nature. So it's understanding where your skill set is, growing those skill sets to get the job that you want to do. But, um, you know, I would say there's any number of jobs in esports because it is, 
you know, right now it has a market cap of about 1.2 billion. It's expected to go up to a market cap of about 2.1 billion this year. You know, and what you got to remember is esports is just a subsection of gaming. You know, it is a subcategory, it is a niche market of the overall $150 billion gaming industry. So, you know, if you have skill sets and they're applicable to esports, they may be applicable to the greater gaming industry as well, which makes you more diverse and have you some more flexibility come graduation time or come, you know, really trying to figure out what you want to do with your job. No, and, and, you know, like, like I didn't even realize all like the specialties that can come within different majors that, that float around um, uh, uh, esports, especially with the psychology. And uh, it's really great to hear, you know, just visualizing it. And, you know, where do you see esports industry in the next 10 years, seeing it develop from, you know, when you started to now over the next 10 years? Sure. Um, so esports definitely faces a little bit of a bubble coming up. Like this isn't like, you know, run for the hills, Y2K sort of like, you know, uh, you know, panic. It is just that there is a bubble that is, in, you know, there's an inflationary bubble in esports, right? And we're seeing this across the markets, right? NFTs are not actually what they're worth, right? We, we, we inherently get this in our minds, but we're in a prosperous time period, you know, mixed with a lot of income disparities. We're going to hit a bubble at some point in time. It doesn't care, you know, create a financial genius to, you know, suspect that. Esports is facing it a little bit more so than other industries, just because it is so venture capital driven right now that over the next five years or so, what we're going to see is companies say, all right, you've now had 10 years, show me the money. All right. I invested you back in 2016. It's now 2026. Did, are you profitable? Did I actually get a return on investment here? So we're going to see that bubble come about because there's just a lot, a lot of money in the marketplace for esports right now. So there's definitely going to be a little bit of a dip in valuations probably over the next five years. But overall, the market for esports is only going to grow, right? You know, my generation, I'm just about to turn 30 years old, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm like, uh, like so old, so much older than you guys. But, you know, my generation, you know, esports was something that we started kind of growing up with, right? I date back my esports experience back to 2010 with the launch of StarCraft II. That was my game. That was so cool with the evolution of Twitch, you know, just getting founded. I actually remember when Twitch was called Justin.tv. So glad they changed the name, by the way. Thank you, God. Um, you know, so, you know, when I was growing up with it, I was 18 at the time, by the time that I really saw esports in my first, you know, real narrative. Look at the generations that are coming up now. I'm sure you guys personally have heard about esports since your mid-teens. The kids that are teens now have been growing up with it. You know, Rocket League has been on Disney XD since like 2017, right? There's an entire generation of students and players and kids right now that fundamentally are you know, have more understanding of esports than what I do right now, right? They're just, they're being bred with it. They're growing up with it is an inherent part of the culture to the point where there was a recent study that came out um, uh, from uh, Nielsen. And they said that, you know, 56% of kids, I think it was 11 to 18, identified uh, as esports or gaming enthusiasts, right? That's, that's their, that's where their passion lies. As opposed to only 50%, of, I think it was 45% of them did so for traditional sports, right? Now we're getting a little bit broad here because whenever you put in gaming and esports to the same category, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Just because you're a gamer doesn't mean you're an esports fan. But fundamentally, we have you know pretty much half the kids you know that are younger than you guys that are still in middle school and high school and you know uh, K through six. They're saying that they're gamers before they're athletes. And they identify with that culture and they identify with those trends. So we're almost seeing a reverse of what we've seen over the last 50 years. So if the trend keeps on continuing and it goes from 56 to 65 to 70, what you're only going to see is as the boomers sort of go away and as our, as we become, as millennials become, you know, adults, and parents and, you know, Gen Zers become, you know, young adults and everything of that nature. The trends are that most of you will have games or esports fans growing up to the point where, you know, your fandom will be 10, 15 years old. You won't be talking about how, ah, uh, yeah, I remember when I was watching, you know, I went to the Yankees games, right? It'll be like, oh, I remember when my dad took me to see my first esports match, right? That's the natural progression because fandoms that we experience, we pass on to our children and we create those bonds and we create those, you know, meaningful memories. So 
the market and the consumer base that is esports is only going to grow. So that means all the auxiliary fields, pro teams, college leagues, high school leagues, and everything else that we're seeing are going to grow alongside them. So I will say, you know, we'll hit a little dip somewhere in the next 10 years, but overall the market and the consumer base is only just going to expand, expand, expand until there's either another technological evolution or gaming just goes the way of the dinosaur. But, you know, looking in my crystal ball, I don't really see that happening anytime super soon. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if VR ever takes it to the next evolution. Um, but, you know, Oculus has had a lot of sales, but, you know, this doesn't convert over to people actually playing it. So who knows uh, on the VR side, but esports as a general rule of thumb and gaming as a general rule of thumb will experience pretty solid next 10 years for sure. And then a question I was always interested in is you always see celebrities either investing or creating their own esports teams. How feasible is, is it for someone to start their own team and it may actually make it a functioning, profitable entity? Okay. Uh, so let's break that question up. How easy is it to create a team? Relatively speaking, if you want to be a tier two org, you know, in that semi-pro circuit, you know, grinding it out, it takes a little bit of money. Um, you know, okay, it'll take a couple, you know, $100,000, I would imagine. You're probably in that 100K to 500K range. Basically, you need a lot of upfront cash to get it going until you build your base and grind it out a little bit. And then hopefully your sponsorship equals out your, your, you know, your net cost. So if you want to be a tier two sort of org, it's not exactly the hardest thing in the world. We've seen a lot of successful companies do that. And where they make their profit from is when they sell their contracts to higher tier organizations, right? You know, you sort of live in that middling space and then you hope to make it big off of a player that you lock into a two or three year contract and you sell it to like a cloud nine or a TSM or a liquid and things of that nature, right? That's, that's your golden goose. Um, so tier two is a interesting sort of field. Some people want to keep it there. Some people want to grow to tier one. It's a very interesting sort of thing. If you want to be a major brand, you want to have an LCS spot, you want to have an Overwatch spot, you want to have a Call of Duty spot, you want to play in the Rocket League series and anything of that nature, you're going to need a, a, a you need some pretty change. You know, like an LCS franchise spot costs ten to fifteen million dollars. Uh, an Overwatch spot costs uh, twenty five to thirty, right? Uh, Call of Duty another like fifteen to twenty, right? So those spots actually cost millions and millions of dollars and things of that nature. Are those teams profitable yet? For the most part, no, they're just, they're just not. Um, the financials aren't there yet to make it profitable, right? If you're getting league revenues and media revenues from the league, they need to grow to X dollars in order for it to become profitable for all the teams involved. And salaries for pro players in the top games from a professional circuit are getting really expensive. Um, so an average League of Legends player as a base salary was making sort of a quarter of a million dollars this past year, right? That's not including their sponsorships, bonuses, anything else that they get. They're just making a pretty good base salary. And you do that over five players. You do that for Overwatch, you know, Valorant and some of the other titles. It gets really expensive really quick. Um, so are those teams profitable? No. But what they do have is a coveted asset, right? There's currently only 10 uh, League of Legends Championship Series spots here in, the, in North America. They may expand it to like 12 or 15, but right now there's only 10. So if you wanted to get in there, you're going to have to go to one of those 10 franchisee spots and buy it. And while they may have bought in at 10, 15 million, they're not selling for 10 or 15 million, right? If you're going on the secondhand market, you know, it's sort of like a sports franchise. Um, you know, was, were the Kings worth, you know, 1.1 billion or are the Marlins worth that sort of money? Like the answer is no, not. But because there's such a rarity and a scarcity in the market, they get to drive the value up. As for why celebrities and people are investing in it, A, it is an asset that has a large quantity of upside and has some risk, right? Not indicate the idea of like, I'm going to go up like Bitcoin, you know, in skyrocketing value, and then you just cash out. No, like it has a lot of inherent risk. So there's Bitcoin, but I don't want to, I don't want to start that fight. Um, but you know, there's a lot of risk involved, but the potential upside is equally massive, right? If 
if these teams can survive the next 10 or 15 years and we see an entire generation of students come, I mean, young kids, young adults grow up with esports, the marketplace in the United States alone will double or triple. So what you bought in at 10 or 15 million when you know the number of consumers was X and now the number of consumers is 4X, right? That value didn't just go up 4X, the value probably went up 10, 15, 20X. And that's the sort of logic behind it. And also a lot of these players, these young athletes, these young uh, movie stars, they're gamers themselves, right? There's a lot of fun stuff when Fortnite was really at its peak, you saw a lot of pro athletes playing it. to the point where general manager of the Boston Red Sox was telling David Price, I don't want you playing Fortnite. You're going to hurt your wrist. I need you ready to pitch in the game, right? That's, that's the conversation that they're sort of having. They're like, so these players use this as a relaxation. And as any of you guys know, when you get wealthy and you get that sort of income, you want to invest in things that you're sort of passionate about, you know? So a lot of athletes are investing in, you know, uh, you know weed stocks and, and video games and different things that they have an inherent connection with and they understand the upside of it, as opposed to saying, yeah, I'm going to invest all my money in biotech fields and, you know, uh, next generation technologies or something like that, where they're like, how do I know if it's good? Oh, my financial advisor told me it was good. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's not how people with, you know, new disposable income work. That's how family offices and hedge funds and different things, you know, those sort of you know, avenues work. So that's why you're seeing the investment strategies that you're getting from there. But are they inherently profitable? Like today, April 30th, 2021? 20, no, for the most part, almost universally, no. Some exceptions, um, I'd be interested to see if phase is profitable or some of the other ones with really like streetwear, merch-based income, they may have a better chance of being profitable, but they also have higher costs to the names and personalities that they have on the roster. So, but, you know, for the most part, almost universally, no, the pro teams are not profitable yet. I think it's interesting that you mentioned like the weed stocks and everything, because I feel like if you go anything stock-related, like here are the next emerging industries, it's like cannabis, esports, electric vehicles. So, always get lumped in together um yeah not super happy about that but yeah we do get lumped in together all the time Um, (laughs) i I was going to ask so you mentioned nfts earlier do you have an opinion about the current market of nfts and if they really have a do you have an optimistic outlook on them going forward depends what time frame you're looking at right so if you tell me should you invest in nfts over the next six months sure right sure Give it another year. Um, but this is, no, I will say this as a uh, casual observer. This is not my area of expertise. I do not want to claim dominance. It's just, we've seen, we're starting to see a lot of crossover in esports with NFTs. Um, but inherently what we have to recognize is this is a boom economy sort of thing, right? This is when your GDP is growing. This is when your stock market's growing. And the reason why people are investing in NFTs the way that they are is because we become so accustomed to the venture capital model of seeing, oh, I need to have a 5X return, a 10X return over 18, 24, 36 months. Um, you know, that there's only few things that can really get that at this point in time, right? There's not, there aren't a whole lot of emerging sectors that are like, yeah, I can 10X your growth, your investment in three years. Sure, no problem. Like, yeah, let's do it. Sign me up. Like, there's just not a whole lot of things out there that can do it because the venture you know, driven model has become so ingrained as a part of our culture, you know, everyone wants to be a part of it, right? And NFTs are a much more universal way that we can do it. You know, it doesn't, you know, whether it's Pokemon cards or whether it's an actual NFT of a, of a GIF or of the first tweet or something else like that. You know, we wanna be a part of it, have a chance at saying, yeah, I invested five grand, but you know what, a year later, 35,000 or half a million or something like that. Something absolutely ridiculous. And that's sort of the model that it's based on. The problem is it only works if it's a buyer's market. The second sellers outnumber buyers, the reverse is going to take place, right? You're going to see values rapidly descend because there's nothing inherent on it, right? There's nothing like, oh yeah, I own that, that tweet. Like where do you house it? Right? Are you putting it up on your walls? Are you showcasing it to people? Like, what are you doing with it? 
you know, for the rich and privileged, it's a, it's a, it's a power marker. That's what they do with art. That's why art has that, that level of high inflation. There's a, there's a value, there's an art, there's a beauty to it. And while that may exist in digital art, it's very hard to showcase on the day. Like, are you going to wear it around your neck? Like, what is, what are you going to do with that to showcase that you have it or, you know, value it or appreciate it? So, you know, people are getting in it for investments. I don't think anyone's really looking at these things and being like, nah, man, I got to collect all the NBA tops cards. Like, I don't think, I haven't heard anyone saying like, dude, I want all of them. You know, you know, Pokemon cards, their initial value was that people really did want to collect them all, right? That was what, that's what gave it its first spike, that first level of rarity, that people did want to have a collection. Same thing with baseball cards. These new NFTs that we're seeing today are based on an evaluation of, this is an investment, I'm going to get something out of this. But that only works in a buyer's market. As soon as sellers outnumber buyers, um, you're going to see exactly what you saw in the stock market, right? Like, uh, I don't know how, how much fun you guys were having during the, you know, GameStop or AMC of it all. But the reality was, you know, a lot of people could have made money if, they, I mean, could have saved a lot of money if they had just sold when it reached a high, right? You know, but we kept on thinking it was going to be higher, right? Oh, I can't, I can't sell out now. I only made five grand. You only made five grand. It was been 12 hours. What are you looking to do with it? Like just sell, just sell. You made a lot of money. That's, you know, for five to 10 grand for most families and most people in this country is a windfall that they will most likely never see again from a single day's work. But we didn't do it, right? Everyone knows that. The reason why it hurt so many people when it came crashing back down is because, you know, they didn't buy in when GameStop was $10. They bought in when it was $140. But they also didn't sell when it was 330. They didn't sell at 200 because they were like, no, 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 no. I can't. I had 100,000. Now I only have 20. Like just sell. People don't have a, a clear evaluation of time, effort, and you know, time value of money. If in 12 hours you can make five grand, do it. Like don't, don't question it. If it comes back down, you think you can make it again, do it again. So, you know, NFTs are the exact same thing. We're doing a lot of speculation here. So if you buy it, and then you can resell it for some, some amount of money. If you open up one of those digital packs and you have a card and you spent $500 on that pack and you can sell a card for five grand, please, dear Jesus, don't hold on to it. Sell it. Like you just sell it now. Even if it's worth 10 grand in six, to, six, uh, six months to a year, it could also be worth 10 cents in two years, right? So unless you have a very clear understanding of the market and know when it's going to peak, you know, that's outside my area of expertise. I'm not a finance guy and that's not what I'm good at. Um, unless you have a clear understanding of that, take your windfall and, and run with it and reinvest it and do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. But don't be that person that holds on to a speculative asset until it's worth nothing. Because inevitably we will see a dip in any one of these hyper speculative markets. It's just inherent in the, in the market system itself. Yeah, I completely agree. I think before this whole NFT thing really became a hot topic, I was starting to look into trading cards and I was like, I just don't understand the the speculation behind some of these trading cards. Like you see, if you have a rookie card of a certain player uh, rated a 10, like mint condition, you can get twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on a card that you spent maybe, what, a pack is like 20 bucks. So I just... I think, like you said, it's a whole boom economy. I think there's a lot of buyers, not a lot of sellers at the moment. Once that sw uh, flip switches, it's, it's going to be going to be an interesting uh, situation. Yeah, and it's just you have to, you know, basic, you know, strategy when you're investing one on one is have a have an out. Know when you want to sell. If you got, if you're looking for five x and you got five x, sell. If you're looking for ten x and you got ten x, sell. Don't be that person that you know came into a market strategy and say. I want to make as much money as seemingly possible off of this thing. That's not the way to go. Have an out, have an out where you feel comfortable and safe and secure because you're never going to feel bad that you made a couple, you know, a couple of grand. You know, if someone said, well, you could have made a couple, you know, you know, like a hundred grand and you're like, okay, yeah, I could have, but I also could have waited a little bit longer and lost 50,000, you know, and then what do, what do I get from it? Um, so yeah, uh, it's definitely just a buyer's market in a lot of different areas. And that's, that's the same thing in esports, right? When I said before, there's a lot of venture money in this. There's a lot of venture money in this. You've seen companies raise hundreds of millions dollars one time. It stands beyond company.
lot of these players that are going on right now that have invested substantial sums of money and you know they're not all going to work out right the inherent nature of venture capital is about 90 to 95 percent of those venture capital you know those ventures are going to fail you just need to strike it rich on the one um so we'll see how it plays in the esports world but it really extends it to just about any of the buyer boom economies that we're seeing right now I think, you know, realizing a profit, like you said, that's good advice. I think th there's a saying, no one ever goes broke realizing a profit. So I think you can't really cry over spilt milk in that case. Um, I think this kind of leads into our last question that we wanted to ask and pertaining to advice in this current job market, what advice would you give to someone who's looking for a job, either a recent graduate or soon to be college graduate? Sure. Um, First, recognize where your skill set is. Assuming you did everything that you were supposed to do in college, you got your internships, you know, you, you worked on your resume, you do, you know, how to write a cover letter, you built your basic skill sets up, you know, recognizing what your skill sets are and where you want to be in the marketplace is, is a really difficult conversation that a lot of students don't have, right? Um, because usually we are so focused in on getting a dream job. I want that job, you know, if you are, you know, if you want to get into the venture, if you want to get into, you know, one of the world uh, finance world, I want to work at Goldman Sachs. All right. Well, what about somebody's family office? No, I want to work at Goldman Sachs. Oh, okay. You know, what exactly skill set do you have that's going to be applying there because you're going to be going up against a thousand, fifteen hundred, two other, uh, you know, two thousand other candidates, right? So honing in on your skill set so that you understand exactly what you're good at and exactly what you're not good at. I will say a lot of first-time job, uh, you know, entry-level job people don't understand that, you know, you usually probably took a job that you didn't have the skill set for, right? You know, if you're not good at writing and you have to write a lot of reports that get submitted to your higher-ups, you know, it doesn't matter what job you're working in, then either you, A, need to correct that skill gap because recognize people aren't going to spend the time, effort, and money to review your writing, right? That's what your professors do for you right now. That's what the writing center does for you right now. Like if you can't do it well, first off, download Grammarly, it'll fix 95% of them, but then you need to make sure that, you know, the other 5% you work on and you, you, know, you build up. This is very much a gig economy and a skills economy, right? That's what we keep on hearing and everyone from that. So if you tell me you have a skill set, you know, you better A, know what that is and B, know how to advertise it, right? Right now, I probably would not hire anyone who doesn't have a basic understanding of uh, Photoshop for esports, right? Because whether you're my social media manager, whether you're my broadcast person, whether you're my operations person that need to write stuff, like I need people that can say, all right, I need a Twitter graphic done in tech, 10 minutes, right? Here's the base template. You can do, you know, do some of that. Uh, you know, like I need to know that you have that skill set because I don't want to take the time as an employee, I mean, as a boss, as a manager and say, yeah, I need to walk you through the steps because realistically in a day-to-day -day economy, you know, in a day-to-day -day business, that's, that's a huge sinking of money. So recognize your skill sets, build your skill sets, right? The more skills you have, um, the better off you'll be in, in the economy and in the job market, right? Um, so if you speak a different language or you're close to speaking another language, speaking it fluently, build that up. If you want to, you know, if you want to be in communications and you have really good written skills, but you've never opened up Adobe before in your life, build that up. You guys want to go into podcasting and doing stuff like that and building content. All right, great. You have the audio. Now show me you have the video editing skills. Show me how you can make a teaser. Show me how you manage your YouTube content, things of that nature, right? That's the next evolution of your skills. So build those skills up so that as an entry-level employee, you have maybe one or two that they're looking for and they'll teach you the third, right? That will be like, oh, that's my on-site jo on job training. Uh, and that's, that's what will separate you out. You know, a lot of people say they have passion, hard work, dedication, time, and that's true. Those are all inherently true. And they're very, very, you know, useful, right? That's something that I want to see in my employees. But, you know, if you really want to separate yourself out, have a different skill set or highlight the skill set that you already have that will be a value, right? Um, if you told me you had video editing work and you were an accountant, like that may be useful to me, right? Maybe you're doing introductory videos for that accounting company on the side 
or that becomes 20 or, you know, 10 or 10, 20% of your work. Who knows what a major employer is looking for in any given different things. But if I see on your skill set that you have different things, especially in the esports world, that's comforting, right? You told me you were a lawyer and you wanted to run operations. I'd be like, absolutely. You're also going to be my counsel, but absolutely. You're going to, you can do tournament operations with me. If you were an accountant, I'd be like, come over here, buddy. You want to be an accountant? Sure. You can run our books. You can do uh, all the finance aspects of it. That's no problem. But you're also going to do, because you wanted to do operations. Sure. You can do our operations as well. You wanted to do broadcasting in your account? Absolutely. Right. There's so much crossover appeal in this current economy. All you have to do is look at current job postings and say, well, yeah, I know how to do that, that, and that, but what is that fourth one? Right. You know, so if you're, you know, if you're really looking and really worried about the job market, build your skill sets as much as you can. You know, become proficient in things. We live in a modern economy with the amount of training that is available for free or very low cost. You know, is just it's, it's it's immaculate, right? If you're going to marketing and you don't, and if you're not Google certified, like why didn't you get yourself Google certified, right? How hard would that have been for someone with a marketing mindset and brain to do? right? Probably takes them three, four weeks or something like that, depending on the course. This is not a hard task to do. You're now Google certified. You're ahead of the other 60, 70, 80% of your class that didn't do it, right? You wanted to see what you separated yourself from? Right there, you separated. Um, you know, and it's cheap or free in most cases. Um, and you can really just do that. So don't rely on the education, your ability to have a great, uh, you know, uh, interview or something like that, build your skill sets. And then honestly, as long as you can showcase them, you'll be forgiven for a bad interview. Bad interviews happen all the time. People are nervous. You're nervous. I'm not on point. You know, maybe the interviewer is having a bad day. Those things can be forgiven. But if you have an inherent skill set that's good and you can showcase, that's, you can't be ignored. You become invaluable and you have something to really offer. So now, outside of the standard, get your internships, do well in school, ask the right questions, which I hope you've been given this advice now, you know, network, go on LinkedIn, do all those sort of fun things, because those are all super, super, super crucial. But if you're looking for the new X factor, it's your skill sets, because you're no longer going to be, you know, you know, middle manager by the time you're 30, right? You're going to be more and more specialized by the time you're 30. All right. That's, that's just how our economy has really driven over the last 20 or 30 years. You become much more specialized as opposed to a much more generalist with more responsibilities, right? That's, that's just not how it works. So the more skills you can develop and hone and showcase, the more value you will have and the more diverse applicant pool you'll be able to apply yourself into. I think an interesting point you make is, you know, build up the skills and you could somewhat take the role of two different positions. I think that provides a lot of value to your employer. Why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they hire you if it saves them from hiring someone else? Yeah. And never forget, you know, an employer may have a need for the skill set that you, that they're not advertising for, but they don't have as much of a need to hire a full-time employee, right? An accounting firm maybe doesn't need to put out video content every day or second day or third day, but they may need to do it weekly, monthly, you know, something along those lines where, okay, you can be our new point person. Now, we don't have to go out to a PR firm and do that every, you know, every month. We can do it in this, we can do it in-house, save ourselves some money, right? There's any number of different skill sets that you can do and have that uh, will correlate to, you know, your job, right? Um, you know, big one. Uh, my, my sister is a product manager, right? She's trying to get certified in, you know, Scrum, but originally she, you know, Scrum, Agile, those sort of project manager position, you know, uh, skill sets and things of that nature. But when she was in college, she didn't know that's what she was going to do, right? But if she had built that skill set and she recognizes this of herself, she had built that skill set when she was getting her undergrad or getting her master's, she would have been a PM a lot earlier than she was in her career. And she's younger than me, so she's, she's doing fine. I don't want to, I'm not trying to throw shade at her in any way, shape or form. But, you know, if she had done that, if someone had recommended that she do that, get that certification, get that skill base, you know, the number of jobs that would have been opened up to her upon graduation, as opposed to, you know, four or five years after graduation would have just been significantly more. Um, you will never 
never regret building a skill set, even if it's not super, super relevant to what you think your job is going to be. Because someone else may see that skill set and say, I really don't care that you're a finance major. I'm going to take you and do X, Y, and Z. A uh, perfect example of that, my brother was an MIT, uh, went to MIT undergrad, you know, best of the breast, big brains, the whole nine yards. Um, and a lot of the science and engineering students graduated and worked when, uh, went to work on Wall Street, especially when he was an undergrad. Because the fundamental aspect was they understood math, right? It didn't matter a rat's ass that they had never taken a business course in their life they knew math. And what those companies were looking for at that particular time, especially when algorithms were becoming a larger and larger influence on the marketplace was they needed people that understood and can do the math. They'll teach you the rest. They're like, we'll teach you, you know, how the dividends work. We'll teach you how to buy on X, Y, and Z. We'll teach you all those other fun stuff that, you know, all of us that enjoy billions, you know, see on a day-to-day -day basis, but like, they'll teach you that that's on site. You can, you can learn that. That's not hard. But if you understand the math, that's something that 95% of finance and business majors right now in this world can't do, right? So why would we go to them when we can hire you uh, at a ridiculous salary and pull you away from saving the environment or saving the world? Not a great uh, ethos uh, for the world out there to say that we probably attract some of the best and biggest minds in the world into finance instead of, you know, like solving, you know, next generation energy or something like that. But that's just the real, that's the real world. They had a, a skill set that was of immense value and they could, you know, they could teach them the rest. So, uh, you know, I know it's a, it's, it seems like a weird sort of answer, but you know, outside of the networking, resume building, working on your presentation and writing skills, the next biggest one that I almost never hear about is building your actual skill base. Uh, because, you know, if you, you know, uh, my father runs the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference has for 30 years. You know, back in the day, he would have never have said like, oh, I needed a video editor, right? You know, but now he needs a video editor who can also do some operations work. He needs interns on a yearly basis that can do PowerPoint and can make a flyer so that his other people can be freed up to do the other work. So like, you wouldn't think uh, entry level sports people would need as much graphical design or video or X, Y, and Z based skills, but they are the most valuable. Like they get the highest salary and they also get the best offers, you know, coming off their first entry level job. So uh, build your skill sets, figure out what skill set would really work for you or you're good at and build it. And inevitably it will help you in the long run. I honestly think that's great advice. I think, like you said, I feel like not a lot of people, not enough people talk about the importance of skills, especially when you're applying for jobs. And I think, like I said previously, if you can fill two positions in one role, that's priceless for an employer. So I think that was really helpful. We covered a lot of good topics on this podcast. I think it's a great way to end it right there. Um, Nick, do you have anything you want to say real quick? Yeah, no, you know, just picking back off of what Anthony said, Professor, you know, this was amazing. We definitely learned a lot. And our listeners are definitely going to benefit out of this podcast. Well, I'm happy to help. And it was a pleasure talking with you guys. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for coming out yet again. And we're good. Nick and I are not certified financial professionals. This podcast is for educational uses only. It should not be used as the basis to buy or sell a security, nor is it the offer to buy or sell a security.